Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Thems. Today, my guest is Dr. Rosalind Byrne, who is an ethics scholar, equine empath, and author of When Horses Whisper, The Wise Wisdom of Sentient Beings. And she also has a follow-up book, Waking to Beauty, Encounters with Remarkable Beings. To begin, I would like to ask you about your work with horses. How did you become a horse whisperer? Well, it certainly wasn't an intention. I was actually on a writing retreat in Costa Rica working on a, on a sci-fi novel, and I wanted to take a break uh, from being in the cabin indoors, so I took a trail ride. And while on that ride, I actually fell off of my horse into the water, uh, the River Arenal. When I got back on the horse, it's like some uh, channel opened in my mind and I heard the horse and we engaged in a conversation and that's where it began. You write, to hear horses whisper is much like hearing an answer to a prayer. And in both cases, we have to trust and believe what we hear with our mind's ear. When we move into a state of deep connection to the unity of life, language falls away Mm. so lovely Mm. Uh, how is it in this noisy world that we live in you have found that place of deep connection I wish it was always with me I'm afraid it's fleeting Um, there are ways to uh, cultivate it that's what I have discovered so that time in Costa Rica I was alone uh, in the rainforest, uh, in a cabin, and meditating morning and evening while I was writing. And I think it just got me into a quiet inner space. When I go out to see horses and to, to work with them, I have to go into that place so that I can hear them. For me, at least, it's not simply always on, especially in the last year where um Things have been so intense and chaotic, and I've been on my screen 10, 12 hours a day for my livelihood on email and focused outwardly and, and not taking time for turning back in. And so I would say um, it's something I, I deeply crave to maintain it and cultivate it, but it takes some work. One of the things I appreciated was that communication with horses was by mutual agreement. And not all horses wanted to talk to humans. What did you learn about mutual respect and the conditions that are needed for true communication between animals and humans? The most important lesson I had about that came from a a horse named Wano, who was a stallion I met in Costa Rica. And when I first met Wano, I was so taken with him, his beauty, his power, his stature really taken with him and so the day after I met him I went back to the barn looking for him excitedly and I walked up to a horse I thought was Wano and started talking to him about how grateful I was to meet him and I turned around and indeed um, another horse across the other side of the barn was staring at me and I and I I had the sinking feeling "Uh uh-oh uh-oh and then I realized that was Wano on the other side of the barn, not the horse I was talking to. So I went to approach him and he really scolded me. Just who do you think you are coming in here, acting like you're special, 
You can't even recognize us. We're all different. And until you figure that out and you learn who we are as individuals, don't bother coming in here. We're not interested. It was quite painful and stunning at the same time because I realized how right he was. I had presumed and I hadn't taken the care to truly respectfully um, recognize and honor the individuals that each of these horses uh, might be. And of course, not being too hard on myself, you know, sometimes it's hard to distinguish one person from another. I, I teach 35 students in a classroom. Sometimes I'm not, it takes me a while to figure out who's who. Mm-hmm. But I realized um, I, it, it, because of what I'm asking of them to connect with me on the level that I do, it's my responsibility to do that in honor of them. So I try really hard now um, to know the name and recognize the marking so I can know exactly who I'm with uh, and address that individual horse. You talk about how horses can heal humans emotionally. Um, can you just describe briefly what some of those ways are? Well, horses um, are heart-centered beings. They uh, pump more, more blood per minute from their hearts. I don't remember. I don't want to be inaccurate, but it's some very significantly more than we do. Um, and relative to their brains, the hearts are just, they're just larger. When they sense us and each other, um, part of what they do uses the heart in a way that we haven't really been cultivating as humans. We tend to be more brain-centered, right? And so because they're heart-centered and because of their senses, they can sense what's going on with us in our own hearts. And that's why they're so helpful for healing because they can feel what's going on in our own hearts. And I would say for most of us, we have broken hearts. I think it was Titan, one of the first horses you encountered. He said, we are here for growth of our consciousness just as humans are. Could you talk a little bit about horses vision of themselves yes uh and i will to your point say that um they don't all hold that awareness just like with humans some of us are oriented towards um i would say spiritual consciousness and some of us are oriented towards um daily mundane three-dimensional living i feel that i'm learning a lot still suzanne i'm learning so much Um, And there's a lot I don't understand. But what I'm coming to is that humans as a species, horses as a species, probably other living species are all in a process of evolving as individuals, but also as a whole. And so I tuned into something I started referring to as soul of horse, which is the, the larger uh, life force, which is the horse soul that then comes into being in individuals, but that the whole is evolving through the experiences of individuals. And I think that's what's happening with humans as well. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. We are all becoming more collectively connected, right? And I think we all already are, but we don't remember that. And so our experiences as individuals and then in collective, um, hopefully 
help us to remember that over time. Your follow-up book, Waking to Beauty, Encounters with Remarkable Beings, you include a lot of personal stories about your own life and some of the personal challenges you have had to deal with. And you state in your introduction that this is not what you initially intended to do. Why was it important to include your own story in telling the story about your work with horses? Because people were asking me, how can you do this? Where does this come from? Uh, Is this something all people can do? Or is this something only some people could do? And I didn't have answers to those questions. And so in order to sort of come to my own understanding about it, I had to think about my own life and the evolution of my own um, capacities for communication sort of beyond the, the, the standard, uh, the norm. And so I, I started digging around and thinking about, well, yeah, in fact, in childhood, I was communicating with people that had already passed on. So maybe there's something that started early for me. And so then it started to, the book started to write itself, I suppose, as the more I thought about experiences in my life, the more I could connect the dots um, to indications that maybe the capacity was in me to be able to do this. To my surprise, actually, the book ends uh, with me out on a lake that I happen to be visiting right now, looking at a loon. And, and taking me back to that sense that we are connected <laughs> and that all of us, not just human to human, but human to all living species, all of life in its various forms, and that the capacity to, to communicate with life is just part of that connection. And so the process of writing Waking to Beauty was a process of waking, it's a sort of double entendre, to the beauty of what I was learning through the horses, but also through considering my life experiences. When I think about communicating with animals and that sense of of true connection, it comes with a lot of pain. And in your book, you communicate with horses and some of the stories they tell are unfortunately about being abused at the hands of humans and what that's like. There's one story that I found particularly heart-wrenching and horrific, which was about the mayor being forcibly impregnated. I'm wondering how it is that you hear these stories and are able to to bear them, I guess, knowing how how mistreated animals are in this world. Well, Suzanne, um, there's the there's the mm, there's the direct experience of uh, being in the presence of a horse that's sharing this, and the the heartbreak of that, and then there's the philosophical you know, position, which is probably how I survive, of this seems to be the nature of life. We, these stories about how we've treated animals have also been the stories about how we've treated other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't understand why there is so much cruelty in the living experience of humans. I don't understand where it comes from or why it's necessary. 
um, I don't have an answer, mm-hmm. but I am glad to have a heart that can feel it. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad to be able to hear the horses so I can share their stories with the people who are responsible for them and hope that they can hear them and change their their relationships. That's what I, why else would this gift have come, you know, if I can't in some way make life better for some of these animals? And I, I hope I have been able to. You are a scholar in ethics. What questions does that lead you or should it lead us to think about in terms of our relationship with animals? Uh, For a long time, until very recently, actually, um, uh, compartmentalizing my work as an ethics scholar, because I work in engineering ethics, right? So I look at technology, technology in the future, but also sort of some of the um, current uh, issues around engineering. And that world, it's such a cut and dry world. It's such a black and white world. And Sometimes I feel like I'm a, um, traveling in a foreign country every time I go to work because I see the world so differently. But I've also been anxious um, about sharing this part of myself in that world, right? Because I'm trying to maintain my um, uh, reputation as a scholar. And so I compartmentalize. And so, you know, I'm publishing in the body, mind, spirit domain, and I'm keeping that separate from the other because I don't know how to unite them. And then a few years ago, I, I spoke with a, a fellow ethicist. I told him the story and he said, you have to write about that. You have to in the academic world. And I thought, how can I do that? Um, fortunately, there are people starting to do it. And I was asked only recently to give a talk, which is coming up next week for an American Society of Engineering Managers. And, and I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, interspecies communication. And I thought, oh my gosh, the universe is now telling me, step it up, kiddo. Step it up and bring these together. Now that's the long answer. The short answer is that they are linked. They're linked because once we begin to acknowledge and accept and really, really see that animals are aware, they're conscious, they're sentient, they're communicating, they communicate across the boundaries of species, then how do we continue to behave the way we do? How do we do that ethically? And so now what I think we have to do is we have to rethink what we consider to be ethics in engineering practice, what we consider to be ethics in the way we live, not just in the professions, but in our personal lives. If that information is available to us, how do we justify it unless we continue to consider other species to be much less significant than us and much less valuable than us. But how do you do that when you learn what I've learned? How do you do that when it turns out that you're looking to the eyes, when I'm looking at a horse, of another living being who is aware, intelligent, conscious, and communicative, and has feelings? How do you do that? So I think I've changed. Uh, Not that I was um, abusive or anything, but I now I now I have to live differently. I mean, when you say live differently, like w- in what way do you feel like you need to do something different? Oh well, it's really funny. Um, so in some ways, it's something as simple as acknowledging and saying hello to a dog when I walk by them on the street, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. like, that's another being. Be, pay your respects. Say hello. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's also um, having a struggle with. You know, I put on my leather shoes and, and now I say, thank you. 
to the life force, the, the life form that made it possible for my feet to be protected with those shoes. But I'm also thinking about it. I'm thinking about what it meant. Um, when I have a meal now, I'm thinking, what do I really need to eat to stay healthy and well? And when I make the choice to eat something that came from an animal, then I have to stop and I have to acknowledge it and I have to give my thanks. Now, what's interesting is I have good friends who are vegans and I respect that. And they're vegans for the reason of protection of animals because of what they understand about animals. But I also now understand that plants are very much alive and plants are intelligent. And the work of some researchers, there's a researcher in Italy named Stefano Moncoso, who documents the intelligence of plants by their capacity to solve problems in very complex ways. So life is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think trying to figure out how to preserve it all is, for me, not the question. It's how to respect it all, how to um, honor it all, how to at least live with awareness of it. You know, one of the most moving moments in in your book, I think this was in Waking to Beauty, is when you are given a whip to use to intimidate a horse and you decide that that's not how you want to develop a relationship with a horse. Um, I'm wondering what horses would say about how we should develop relationships with them and with other living beings. Well, Susanna, we, um, we domesticated horses and that's, that's a word that uh, has a lot of meaning for me. We took them out of the wild long time ago and um, most of them and made them dependent on us by uh, breaking them, that's the language that was used, training them. Um, and now, because of that, they are in our care and they are responsibilities, except for the, the few that remain in the wild and we're not treating them very well right now. We're collecting them and putting them to death, a lot of them. But at, at any rate, those that now are part of human culture, um, I think that uh, asking them, for example, when I work with my clients and something's going on, I'll often say, well, did you ask them? Did you tell them first? So often horses are bought and sold um, just because they're not working out. And it turns out what I'm learning is that's really, really hard for many horses because they have relationships with other horses that they live with. They bond, they're connected to the people they're with. And then suddenly one day they're somewhere else and they belong to someone else, they're owned by someone else, and they wonder, what happened? What did I do wrong? And so just communicating, just like what we want to do with other human beings, to communicate, this is what's going on. This is what has to happen. I'm sorry for the pain this may cause you, but this is why. Having conversations, heart-to-heart, honest talks, why can't we at least just start with that? And I think that's what they're asking for, at least from my experience, that's what they're asking for. You also were a science fiction writer. And as you describe it, you say that you use science fiction to tweak students' moral imagination. 
Can you talk about that? With ethics, when I'm teaching engineering students, um, sometimes I check out, you know, because a lot of conventional ethics education is around codes of behavior, like don't do this and make sure you don't lie and make sure you don't cheat. And, um, and then if you expand it out a little bit, you can take it to what we call the macroethics. So the microethics is about individual behavior, but the macroethics is more about you know, the meaning and significance of, say, technology in, in the world. And so to get them to think about, um, to think creatively and imaginatively, science fiction takes them off the hook in a way because it's no longer about them as individuals and they can sort of then extrapolate beyond known reality. And when you can extrapolate beyond known reality, beyond sort of our everyday um, relationships with the way technology is now, then you can be more playful and more relaxed. And it's challenging for them. Like when you think about the possibilities of, for example, AI systems becoming intelligent or robots interacting with humans in a way that humans become attached to them, et cetera, et cetera. Science fiction can take us out of the realm and then we can talk about values and concepts and beliefs out there in that realm and then bring it back, bring it back Mm -hmm. to center. So we can imagine something other than what exists right now. Science fiction helps us to do that. But the thing about science fiction is it's always really about the present. I mean, it appears to be about the future, but it's pulling from concerns about the present. Can you talk about your science fiction book, uh, Waiting in the Silence? That was such a wonderful experience writing that book. Um, And again, (laughs) that was not intentional. I had been interviewing um, scientists in New York City at NYU and Columbia about their work in nanotechnology and thinking about implications um, of their work for the future. And that nanotechnology has to do with manipulating matter um, at the nanoscale, which is teeny, 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 tiny. And at the nanoscale, properties um, are different, like the properties of uh, uh, carbon are different at the nanoscale. So you can do things with them that you can't do at the macro scale. At any rate, I've been doing these interviews for two days straight. I went to my hotel. I went to sleep. At about one in the morning, I woke up. I sat up wide awake. And I thought, what am I doing awake? And I couldn't get back to sleep. And so I picked up a pen and I just started writing and I wasn't really thinking. I just started writing half awake, half asleep. And then uh, dawn came and I thought, oh, shucks, I missed my chance to sleep. So I put the papers away and went back to work. And then months later, I found the papers and I started reading them. And lo and behold, it was a short story set in Nantucket in the future. And the main character was a woman named Oriana, who was... um, uh, pregnant in a way that was quite against the dictates, the mandates of the, of the laws of the future. Um, and it was a time, near-term future, where climate change had wreaked havoc on the world. Um, but so had some of our behaviors that led to serious problems of, of infertility. So at any rate, uh, I turned it into a novel because I fell in love with the character Oriana and her story really enticed me. And it's like the characters were talking through me and that's the beauty of the imagination, if you let it do that. Um, and she ended up having quite um, a fierce response against the system that was trying to manipulate her, her procreative life. 
Um, I use that uh, as a way of thinking about ethics in terms of where we're going with some of our technologies. And I think that that book came, the seed was planted because I was interviewing these um, mostly men, actually, scientists about their work and wondering how are we thinking about what this work might mean for our lives uh, in the future. And it seems in a way to connect back to your work with horses in that the people who are making the decisions also need to be thinking about the implications for everybody who's affected by those decisions, right? Including animals. Including animals. And and I hope to contribute as a scholar in my work to that conversation. Um, I think that's what I'm some part of me is being called to do right now is like, stop hiding, (laughs) bring it right into the academy, right into the world of engineering and pose these questions because a lot of technological development, um, whether directly or indirectly impacts human life as well as all life. And at this point, what we do with our technologies, what we do with our engineering um, has responsibilities for the entire uh, biosphere of all life, because it can impact all life. We're living with it. We we look at the droughts and the fires and the pandemics, and we're living with the results of our actions, um, our consumption of technology, but also our development of it. So yeah, it is connected, Suzanne. I'm hoping to connect those dots in a better way in in my writing. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Rosalind Byrne, who is a professor of applied ethics at the University of Virginia and the author of When Horses Whisper and also Waking to Beauty. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? If you just type Rosalind Byrne, B-E-R-N-E, into a Google search, it's going to pop up all kinds of things. I also have a website, rosenburn.com. That website has on it video of me talking to a horse. Thank you so much today for being on the show. You're kind. Thank you for your wonderful questions. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Thems. Each week, I bring you interviews with kick-ass women artists, activists, scholars, and social change makers who are reimagining the world. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a comment. 